Good morning. This is God's word from Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Amen. Thank you, Heather. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you guys. Uh, If you're new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you all together today, and we are going through this teaching series in the book of Colossians. We're doing this uh, in partnership with Martha Lake Baptist Church, just around the corner from us here, who, uh, if you've been coming around for a while, you know that we're in the process of praying and discussing uh, the idea to merge together as church communities. And so this kind of sermon series where we're walking through this book of Colossians together is part of that. And I even know a handful of people are not here at this worship gathering right now because they're over with Martha Lake Baptist Church uh, participating in their worship gatherings right now. And that's such a joy. And and speaking of things that bring my heart joy and Martha Lake Baptist, uh, yesterday we had our first ever Women's Discipleship Day. It was at Martha Lake Baptist, and there were over a hundred women from Sound City and Martha Lake and beyond who joined together to focus on God's Word, being women of the Word. And I know there were a lot of ladies, well, first of all, a lot of ladies were encouraged by it, built up by it. I've heard lots of good reports. Many of you in this room were there. Uh, And there were a lot of women involved in setup and cleanup and leading music and being table discussion leaders. But in particular, uh, three ladies have been working and laboring behind the scenes. And I just want to make sure that I share their names with you so that you can honor them and thank them. Uh, Yana Friday and Danielle Martin and my own wife, Erin Lynn Gray, have been working really hard for months and months to make this work. So... And as a father of like a trillion daughters, uh, I am really thankful to be a part of a church that takes seriously uh, the instruction for men and women to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, to use our gifts to teach and to build one another up. And so um, I know they don't want to do another one next month, but like eventually. So uh, look forward to that happening. And also one other thing, just as a side note, uh, one of our staff members, intern, Jacob Godby, he and his wife Esther welcomed their first kid into the world yesterday. So yeah, thankful for that. He will probably listen to this on podcast, so giving you a shout out, be praying for them, everything's good, and uh, if my sermon sounds a little less prepared this week, it's completely my own fault, because he was there all week helping me, they just had the baby yesterday, it's fine, so 
thankful for this opportunity to get to teach from God's word. We really are today in Colossians chapter 2, we're really getting to like the heart, the meat of why the book of Colossians was written. It was written by Paul and Timothy to this church in Colossae, which is in Asia Minor, what we would call today Turkey. And, and this is this passage, last week's and, th- and this week's, are really kind of a two-parter that shows why this letter needed to be written. And so we've got a lot of stuff to unpack, but even as we just sang a moment ago in that verse we looked at, um, apart from abiding in Christ, I can do nothing. Apart from abiding in him, our hearts don't get transformed and changed. So let's go before the Lord in prayer now uh, as we turn our attention to his word. God, we thank you for the scriptures that you've given to us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspired them not only to be written, but you bring them to life. The, the word of God is living and active and it's, it's sharp like a, like a two-edged sword that can do work in our hearts and cut through uh, the things that need to be cut through, but also to build us up and strengthen us in Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence here now. Jesus, we thank you that you are presiding over this gathering. And Father God, we thank you that you are ruling and reigning over all things right now. And I ask and I pray for myself and for all of uh, us who are gathered here today, <clears throat> I pray that you would help just anything that would want to pull our hearts and distract us away from the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that it would fall to the side right now and we would be able to evaluate our own hearts in the light of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We give this time to you. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen. So I, I am a parent. I have four daughters. I mentioned a moment ago. I said a trillion, but the number's four. And one of the things I love about being a parent is I love watching the creativity of my kids. Any parents know what I'm talking about? Kids like to try things out. Uh, I have the, the range. The youngest is seven. The oldest is 15. And when kids are younger, the things they try out are like, I'm going to try out coloring something. You know, when my youngest daughter, actually my second youngest daughter, is just a constant output of creativity. She never stops making things out of things. I literally can't throw garbage away because as I'm trying to take recycling, I said, no, 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 dad, I'll use that. I'm going to make a fairy house. I'm going to build a school for my Barbies or whatever it is. Like just always making things. And it's cute and it's adorable and she uses a lot of glue and it's just fine, right? As my, my girls have gotten older, the teenagers, one in particular, Delaney, loves to cook, and she's in the kitchen cooking, and, and we're really grateful for that. She does a great job, but there's a difference between my younger daughter experimenting with paper and scissors and glue and an older daughter cooking in the kitchen. Like, one is like, if you mess it up, yeah, you make a bad fairy house. The other one, if you mess it up, like, you're going to burn the house down, honey, okay? And, and, and there's this range within parenting of, like, I, wa- I like watching my kids try things. I like seeing their heart and their creativity. But sometimes you got to know, okay, this really isn't that big of a deal. And other times, like, no, this is a really, really big deal. You guys tracking with me? And I think there's things like that in the Christian faith that kind of fall along that continuum. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis, I'll paraphrase it, where he talks about how our God looks at us the way that a father would look at like a, a little toddler just trying to learn how to speak. And it's cute, and it's not really that impressive, and, but just there's a smile on God's face. You, you guys, do you guys feel that sometimes? you guys sense that as we stumble forward in this life, and we're not doing that great of a job, and we're, we're weak, and we're immature at times, but you can sense God's good pleasure on us, that he loves us like a father would love a young child. But there are also times, as we grow and mature as Christians, where I think that other end of the spectrum is true, where God says, hey, I need you to pay attention. This is actually really serious. 
This is something, it's, this is not, you know, cutting up construction paper. This is cooking with a stove, cutting with a knife. And if you mess this up, you could do severe harm to yourself and to others. Some Christians are prone to put everything in the it's not that big of a deal category. Other Christians are prone to put everything in the it's a huge big deal category. And the reality is, is maturity looks a lot like knowing which things go in which category and how to live in that tension. This passage today in Colossians is one of the more serious matters. This church is dabbling in ideology and teaching that is harmful and destructive. And I know we live in a, in a world, in a culture, where uh, we're very pluralistic. Lots of different ideas, lots of different ideologies. And we, as followers of Jesus, should be able to show love and, to gra- and show grace to people with all sorts of different ideas and ideologies. Amen? Like, we're not out there, like, looking for a fight with everything, but that doesn't mean we agree with every idea and every teaching and every philosophy. Are you guys tracking with me on this? Like, this is the heart of why Paul and Timothy are writing this letter. There are things that are spiritually harmful to you and the people around you. So we have to take it seriously. Now, if I was to summarize this Colossian church, it's not like they're um, being corrected for not caring about Jesus at all. They're not being corrected for robbing banks and murdering people and participating in like temple prostitution. Like these are not wild living sort of people. These are actually people who best we can tell are trying to follow God. They're actually trying to do the right thing. They're trying to connect with God and they're trying to live a good life. Does anybody here want to connect with God? Show of hands. Anybody? Like, it's a good thing. Does anybody here want to live your life well? To not bring harm on yourself and others? Those are good aims. Those are good goals. But similar to a child, sometimes there's ways that they're doing it. It's like, that's not the right way to do it. You actually could bring harm to yourself. So this Colossian church is in the realm of what I, what I would call religious distraction. They're starting to listen to certain teachings, certain ideologies, certain perspectives that actually take them away from the goal of connection with God and a life well lived. And so the big idea of this passage and, and what I want to share today is, is very simply this. It's, it's that Christ, at the end of the day, is what we truly want and what we truly need. Even though our hearts are prone to wander, even though we, like the church in Colossae, are prone to seek knowledge and to seek satisfaction and to seek a a, a life well lived in other places and other things, at the end of the day, it's Christ or nothing. So let's unpack this passage. We're going to see kind of three main pitfalls. It's actually really convenient. You'll see in this passage, Paul writes a thing. He says, says, "Don't, don't believe this thing. Here's the problem with it. And then he goes, here's the thing, and here's the problem with it. And here's the thing, and here's the problem with it. It's like this really nice regular rhythm. It's very helpful for me as a Bible teacher because I know where the sections are. (laughs) It's much better than like judges or something like that. So we're going to start with the bucket that I'm calling traditionalism. Kind of three. Traditionalism, mysticism, legalism. 
Traditionalism, mysticism, legalism. Let's pick it up in verse 16. Therefore, by the way, whenever you see one of those therefores, as the uh, Bible school cliche goes, when you see the therefore, you need to ask, what is it there for? It is there for the purpose of connecting you to everything we said last week. The whole passage we're looking at last week, that your Jesus isn't big enough. There are no words to describe how huge he is. There are no words to describe the extent of the work that he has done for us, that he has forgiven us of our sin. He's made our dead hearts come alive. He has uh, uh, wiped out a spiritual debt. He's defeated the forces of darkness. Jesus is amazing, amen? He's done so much good stuff for us. So therefore, in light of all that, in light of how amazing he is, number one, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food, and drink, or in the matter of a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, these are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Okay, these words, these words, you guys see in these words here? Food, drink, festival, new moon, Sabbath. What are we talking about here? What is this? What do these words belong to? If you were here last week, you remember I talked about how this part of the world, it's largely a Gentile audience, But there's a good, strong concentration of Jewish people who lived in the area as well. And this church, it's a mixed audience, probably uh, mostly Gentiles, but a strong group of Jews as well. And we know in various times in in the story of the early church, you can read Acts, you can read in Galatians, we know that sometimes these Jewish followers of Jesus really struggled to welcome Gentiles in. And there was an expectation that Gentiles had to become Jews in order to follow Jesus. But if you want to read that discussion and that debate, go read Acts chapter 15. There was a, a conference, there was a, a council that they convened together, and the early church apostles said, no, 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 Gentiles don't need to become Jewish. They just need to avoid sexual immorality and, and don't eat things that are sacrificed to idols. There were a few things they said, hey, this would be, this is what it means to follow Jesus. But no, Gentiles don't have to become Jews. This is this list of things seems to be indicating that there are some Jewish followers of Jesus who are judging, likely, Gentile followers of Jesus over matters of Jewish tradition. Food laws. You know food laws? Food laws. Uh, God gave the people of Israel laws, eat this, do not eat that. Eat these types of animals, do not eat these other types of animals. And it's not because God was embarrassed that he invented the shrimp. It's that he, he wanted to teach his people, Israel, you say yes to the things of God, you say no to these other things. There are clean things and there are unclean things. It's not because pork or shellfish or clam chowder is inherently bad. There's nothing wrong inherently with clam chowder. God's not embarrassed of people from Boston. It's fine. But he wanted to use this as a lesson to teach them how to trust him. So when God says yes to other things and no to other bigger things, that we would trust him. This is a, a lesson. The, the drink laws, there, there are certain drink laws, they didn't necessarily apply to all of the people of Israel, but there are certain laws around wine. When someone would serve as a priest, and there were certain laws about not drinking wine, not drinking alcohol around certain times of service, or there's a particular type of vow that some people would take called a Nazarite vow in which, like Samson, don't cut your hair, don't drink wine, don't touch any dead thing. It's, a, it's kind of an extra special vow to show that God has called you into a specific area of leadership or service. 
What about the Sabbaths? Sabbath is a uniquely, persistently Jewish practice. The other cultures of the ancient Near East did not practice Sabbath. It's really one of the most unique things about the Jewish people. This day to stop Friday night at sundown to Saturday night at sundown. By the way, Sunday is not the new Sabbath. The Sabbath is still the Sabbath. Sunday is the Lord's Day, it's called in the book of Acts. The earliest Christians, the the earliest Jewish Christians, would gather for temple worship on the Sabbath and then get back up early on a work day on Sunday morning to gather together and celebrate the resurrection of the Messiah. Now, we who are Gentiles are not held to obligations around the Sabbath the way that Jewish people would be, but how many of you know it's still a good idea to take a day of rest? I I said it a few uh, months ago, but if we took the commandment to rest, if we took other commandments as lightly as we took commandments about resting, we would probably all need to face church discipline. And then festivals. The, the, The new moon and festivals, Jewish people followed a lunar calendar, so the phases of the moon helped mark the seasons. And there are seven feasts that are prescribed in the Bible in Leviticus 23. Let me, just, let me just walk you through so you can have all of this. It just says festivals. I mean, this is a ton of content. Passover, Leviticus 23.5. Celebrating when they were slaves and then they were freed from Egypt. The feast of unleavened bread that God fed them while they were in the desert. He provided manna. The Feast of first fruits. This is in the fall harvest when, when people would receive their crops and their grains and their fruits and their harvest. They would give the very first and the very best unto the Lord. And that's an encouragement for us. Again, the principle of don't wait until you're down to your last $5 in your bank account before you give to God. Give to God right out of the first and the best. Prioritize it. There's a feast called the Feast of Weeks, or it's maybe more commonly known as Pentecost, where we they would celebrate God giving the law through Moses. There's a Feast of Trumpets, which sounds loud. It's Rosh Hashanah, the new year. It's a, it's a celebration of the new year, and it's a time for resting. There's the big high holy day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when sacrifices were given to cleanse the sins of the people. And then lastly, there's the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles called Sukkot, which is it's the sleeping in tents to remember the 40 years in the wilderness of, of not having a home and being a mobile set-up, tear-down church. And this, all these festivals, sorry, that one slipped out, but the, these festivals and these feasts and the Sabbath and the food laws and the drink laws, let me ask you a question. Are any of them bad or wrong? This is not a trick question. Is anything about this bad or wrong in and of itself? Not at all. In fact, they're good because all of the commands of the Lord are good. See, Paul and Timothy, as they write this letter, are not saying that the traditions themselves are bad, that you shouldn't have traditions. What they're saying is you've stopped with tradition and you've fallen short of what the tradition are supposed to point to. Verse 17 These things are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. When I was a kid, for like a brief minute, I wanted to learn how to do shadow puppets really well. Actually, as a kid and as an adult, I have about 
10 to 12 per week things like, I'm going to get into this. I'm going to figure this out. Uh, it's my personality type. I was going to learn Rubik's Cubes. I solved Rubik's Cubes. I forgot how to do Rubik's Cubes. But when I was a kid, I wanted to do shadow puppets. You ever seen those shadow puppets? I can, there's a little bit. Like I could still do like a dog here. Like I do that a little bit. That was amazing. You guys didn't see it. It was really good. It was so good. Thank you. Any dog people here? Anybody's like, a, I'm a dog person. I love dog. Yeah, Brandon, you're a dog person, right? So I got like a dog puppet here. Woof. How, how much did you love that, Brandon? Thank you. How much better is a real dog that you get to hang out with, right? The idea here, <laughs> it was much more eloquently stated by the apostle. The idea here is that there's nothing wrong with Sabbath and food laws and the festivals and all of these things that God gave to the people of Israel. It's just that they're a shadow. And now the reality is here. Every single one of those things is meant to point us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. The food laws teach us that Jesus makes the unclean become clean. And the drink laws remind us that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, full strength poured out the wrath that we deserve. He drank it on the cross. And the Sabbath reminds us that in Christ we find our eternal Sabbath rest. And the festivals, every single one of them points to the person and the work of Jesus. Passover, we've been freed from slavery to sin and death. Yom Kippur, our Christ has been sacrificed on our behalf. And in his blood we find washing and cleansing and forgiveness of sins. It all points to Jesus. There's nothing wrong with a tradition, but there is everything wrong with holding on to the tradition and missing out on what the tradition points to. You guys tracking with me on that? And even these, like, maybe there are bad traditions. I'm sure there are bad traditions. These are God's traditions. These are good traditions. But don't hold on to traditions and miss out on the substance that is Christ. I heard an example one time of, you know, like a kid who's scared at nighttime. And so you have a nightlight, and you plug the nightlight in, and the nightlight has a sun, like a sunshine on it. And that nightlight helps the kid not be scared at night, and the sunshine is there. And then in the morning, when the sun actually comes up, if the kid went and unplugged the nightlight and carried it around, I just love my nightlight. I love the sun. I look at the sunshiny nightlight. It's like, well, look at the actual sun. The nightlight is a reminder that the sun is going to rise in the morning. And all of these traditions are a reminder that Christ has come in the flesh to die, to rise again, and give us new life. Next one. What I'm going to call the bucket of mysticism. Verse 18, let no one condemn you. So here we go again. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices, worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by notions of their unspiritual mind. He, this, such a person, doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. Okay, a couple of things here. Asceticism, not a word that we uh, traffic in often, but it means a severe treatment of the body for religious purposes. 
maybe some of you read the book or saw the movie The Da Vinci Code, and there's that character in it, the monk who like whips himself and beats his back to, to stay focused on the mission of, you know, finding Tom Hanks or whatever it is. And uh, you, know, you can read about like Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, like laying in the snow to try to curb his fleshly appetites. There's a monk, I, I can't remember his name or the specific date, but there's a monk who was well-known. I think it was one of the desert fathers. He climbed up to the top of a pole like a pole, and like just stayed on top of this like 30-foot-tall pole for like weeks. Asceticism is something that people have done throughout the years to try to connect with God, to try to say my flesh and my desires get in the way. I need to beat myself up in order to connect with God. And then they mentioned this thing of worship of angels, which we looked at a little bit last week, but not only in paganism, but in certain mystical strains of Judaism as well, where, where there was this elevation of angels and supernatural beings, so much so that it was like worshiping them. We looked at that in the book of Jubilees and this idea of like claiming access. It's stuff that can't be confirmed or denied. Here's, here, let me ask you this question. Is it good, this is not a trick question, is it good to seek to control the desires of the body in order to live a life that's honoring to God. Is it good to do that? Yes. Okay. Um, is it good to be aware of the fact that we do not live in a purely naturalistic world, but there are angels and demons and spiritual forces and things happening all around us all the time? Is it good to be aware of that? Yes, it absolutely is. Is there such a thing as visions? Is there such a thing as visions? Yes. In fact, uh, Sam Storm says about this, he says, Paul's denunciation of their visionary experiences is not a blanket indictment of all revelatory encounters. Paul himself had visions, as did Peter and Ananias, just to mention a few. In fact, Peter described visions to be characteristic of the work of the Spirit in the present age. You go read that in Acts 2. He's preaching the sermon. He says, this is like when, when, when the Messiah comes, people are going to have visions. Uh, he's quoting from the prophet Joel. Paul's concern, therefore, is with elitist claims based on alleged visionary experiences that people use to disqualify so-called lesser saints. These are purported supernatural encounters that lead not to godliness but to arrogance. Let's go back to this passage here. Let's look at this, right? It's, it's, it's arrogance. Such people are inflated like a balloon, like a puffer fish. It's, look at how big I am. Look at how spiritual I am. Look at how impressive I am. I have had access to a supernatural realm. I'm talking to angels like the prophet Daniel and Ezekiel. And here's what's really interesting. He says, they're inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. That's a low blo- That's a mean thing to say to somebody who is very puffed up thinking about how amazingly spiritual they are. I beat my body up. Actually, some, one scholar I read said that people would actually starve themselves or beat, them up, beat themselves up so bad to try to almost like trigger hallucinations. Uh, you know how if like somebody is, hasn't had food or water in the desert for a long time, you start to see things, a mirage or a hallucination. People would intentionally do that kind of stuff in order to, quote, gain access to this spiritual realm. Today, people just, you know, take hallucinogenics, but it's the same sort of a thing. I'm going to alter my body and alter my mind so as to get access to something that I didn't otherwise have. Paul calls them, those people are unspiritual. And actually, he says this, 
These people, such a person, doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body. Pause. Who, who is the head of the body? Jesus. And we are the body. Nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons. He's getting pretty specific. Like, am I reading the Bible or is this like an anatomy textbook, right? Growing with growth from God. There's a reason why Paul gets so specific. These ascetics deny the goodness of the body. There's a hymn. I love the music of the hymn, and I hate the words of the hymn. It's called I'll Fly Away. And I've publicly expressed this contradiction in my heart before on this hymn. But the language in that hymn talks about, like, someday, like, like a bird that's been freed from a prison— I will fly away. And the language is like, well, you're, this body, this body's like a prison and it's bad and you need to get out of this body and someday when we're purely see-through and shimmering spirits, all will be well. Friends, I don't know if you've read the end of the book, there's a resurrection. We'll have bodies for all of eternity. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Did, did you read the beginning of the story? Who made bodies? Who took the dust of the ground and the, the mud and mixed it together and breathed the breath of life? Who took the, 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 the side of Adam and fashioned the woman? Who did all of that? God himself. What we need to gain access to spiritual connection with God is not a denial of a, the body, but connection to the one who is himself the fullness of God in bodily form, Jesus Christ. You remember that when we looked at that last week? He still has a body. Jesus right now exists in the presence of God, the Father in heaven, in a body, and we have been filled by him. You might ask me, how does that work? And I will say, I don't know. But it is not spiritual to reject things of physicality and say, well, now I've got this access to this super secret realm. Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form. And by the way, you want to talk about asceticism? Oh, you know, Jesus fasted in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights to live the perfect life, to defeat the accuser, and to show that he is the true Israel who's come to bring all of the nations back to God. And you don't need to worship angels because Jesus commands legions of angels. They go where he tells them to go. And yes, Visions can reveal truth, but Jesus is the fullness of God revealed. It's Jesus again. Last category, verse 20. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you, why do you still live as if you belonged to it? Last week we talked about this elements can refer to the actual elements, like the real physical things or the spiritual realities behind don't know exactly what's being leaned on here. But then it gets even more specific. Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, don't, don't do it. It's in quotes to let you know it's in that voice. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They're human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom, by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they're not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. You see elements in here, again, of asceticism, 
spiritualism, but really the key is this, this language of regulations. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. And, and it's human commands and doctrines, what I'm calling legalism. Let me, let me say this. I need, to, I need to make sure you hear me loud and clear on this. It is not legalism for us to call one another to obey the commandments of God. Okay, I'm going to say it again. It is not legalistic for me or another brother or sister in your life to say, you should not do this thing, you should do this other thing, when it is clearly based on the commandments of God in the scripture. Okay? You got to know that. For someone to tell you to do something, no, it's all based on the work that Jesus has done for us and we're invited into that by his grace and all of that. But that's not legalism. What legalism is, two things. Number one, the commandments of God aren't enough. We need to add extra regulations. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. It's hard to know exactly what's being referred to here. Maybe the don't taste, it's like there's the food laws, you know, for the Jewish followers of, uh, of Jesus, don't eat these foods. Like, yeah, don't, even, don't even taste them. Don't even put them in your mouth. The don't touch, I don't know if this is explicitly what Paul and Timothy are thinking of, but when I read that don't touch, my mind goes to Genesis chapter three. You remember when God gave Adam and Eve the commandment to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And then when Eve is speaking with the serpent and the serpent said, did God really say? And she said, well, you know what Eve said? She said, God said not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in fact, not even to touch it. Eve added to the commandments of God. Even those extra rules, even those extra commandments that she added to the commandment of God did not save her or Adam from giving in to temptation. Legalism adds extra things, but legalism at its heart, it's a heart issue. Legalism is an outside in. I'm going to conform my actions. I'm going to hold it together. I'm going to grit my teeth and clench my fists and not really deal with the heart inside that is full of sin or lust or pride or anger or cowardice. It's I'm going to act good and that's what will make me good when in fact Jesus says the exact opposite. Legalism trusts in external rules and checklists. It it looks like wisdom, right? Look at what he says. This this has a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion. Like, you you know somebody who's really legalistic? Their life oftentimes looks pretty good. You know, the legalist is not out wasting money at the casino and putting their family in tens of thousands of dollars of debt. The legalist is not drinking to access and getting behind the wheel of a car. The legalist is not messing around with people who are not their spouse. The legalist looks pretty good. It looks like a life of wisdom, but it's not actual wisdom. It's a bunch of rules. It's a bunch of regulations. It looks like wisdom. It looks like religion. It looks like even humility. It could look like humility. Oh, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm just a whatever. It looks like it's humility, but it's actually, look what they say. It has no value in actually curbing self-indulgence. Legalism doesn't get to the heart. Friends, I believe that our behavior and our choices matter. But we preach 
a gospel that says God wants to take residence in your heart through the Holy Spirit and transform you from the inside out. It's not just that your behaviors should change. God wants your very desires and motives to change. And you can white-knuckle it, and you can clench your teeth. You can live by, you know, um, the analogy of a, of a pre-flight checklist. Good pilots, they have to run down this list, right? It's a big list. I want all the boxes have to be checked, and we've checked the flaps, and we've checked the tire pressure, and we've checked our, you know, our readings and our gauges and all that sort of stuff. I remember the, the, um, reading the story, the article about the, what's the guy, Sully, who that plane went down, and he landed it in the river, and all of that. I bet you anything he did a pre-flight checklist. Bet you. But when well, the birds went into the engine and the plane started to falter, do you know what he wasn't doing? Reading a manual. Pre-flight checklist. Oh, let's, let's consult page 42. What to do when you hit a flock of birds. Like, he's going off of years of training and shaping what the ancient Christians would call virtue. His heart was shaped. His, his instincts were shaped. As a pilot, he knew how to navigate. Even when the plane wasn't working right, he knew how to navigate and safely land the plane in the river. Friends, for us as followers of Jesus, that's what God wants for us. True wisdom oftentimes doesn't look like following a checklist. Raise your hand if you're the kind of person who wants a checklist. Anybody here like checklists? Oh, man. I know we've got a lot, especially you who work at Boeing. You really like the checklists, Okay. And while there's some value in that, what God wants is your heart. And think about this. Jesus curbed all self-indulgence. Even if there would have been an opportunity, Christ is not divided, but in the garden, Jesus prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus confronted the religious leaders who put heavy burdens on the people. And he said that he came to set the captives free so that we're now free to live a life of truly honoring God. Not legalistic rules, not outside in, but inside out transformation. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. James Iverack, a Scottish preacher from the 1800s, said this. He says, merely negative rules do not avail. They don't work for the maintenance and growth of the Christian life. For life is not merely offered for our acceptance, it's offered to our acquisition. It's not something like, oh, okay, I guess that's, that's true. It's like, no, take hold of it. Grab a hold of this. Not abstinence or indulgence or mystic immersion into an external symbolism, but in the appropriation of Christ in his person and his work does the Christian life consist. It means you spend time with Jesus and you get to know him and he, he, he changes you from the inside out. The Christian must live over again the experience of the Christ. He must die with him, rise with him, live with him in an ever-growing life. Now, let me bring it to bear on us. I said at the beginning that this Colossian church is guilty of what I'm calling religious distraction. And I know most of you in this room, it is very rare that I have to sit down with someone in the church. It happens, but it's rare that I have to sit down with someone in the church and say, you are just you know, headstrong pursuing sin. You're just running off into sin and willfully doing whatever you want. Most of you are trying to live a good life and trying to connect with God. 
And while our distractions might be different than the Colossian church, there still are distractions. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? Uh, we, we, we live in a, a, a political climate right now, and in particular a political season, where like that is the thing. If you're not paying attention to that, like who even are you? What are you even doing? Just smash your phones and your TVs right after service. That's my free of charge suggestion to you, okay? It's not just politics. It's, it's um, for those of you who are parents. Any parents here? It's like, how many emails can one school send in a day? Like, man, you're talking about like vying for my attention, right? And some of these same impulses of the heart still ring true. Some of you are more traditional. Some of you like traditions. Some of you like, some of you, it's like, man, Christmas comes around, you are just beast mode, okay? We gotta get the tree up, we gotta get the decorations on, we gotta get the, you know, the, the, the Dean Martin CDs out, we gotta get going, like Christmas traditions. I'm not talking at you, Hannah, but it's just, I know, I, you should see our office, okay? It's a, uh, some of you love traditions. There's nothing wrong with being a more traditional-minded person, but do those traditions serve to propel you towards Christ? And I would even suggest for those of you who are more traditionally-minded, you need to practice the art of flexibility. You might need to spend some time meditating on Bible verses, like uh, when Jesus says in the Gospel of John that the Holy Spirit is like the wind and it blows wherever it wishes. And you're like, that stresses me out. Like, exactly. We need to lean into this other side of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with your traditions. Praise God. I'm actually thankful. I'm not a very traditions-based person, but I'm thankful that we have people in our church community who can remind me of what these traditions are for our church, for people's birthdays, for any of those sorts of things, if we're using them to love Jesus and to love one another better. Some of you are more mystical. That's a, maybe it's not the best word. Spiritual esoteric, heart level. Some of you have dreams and visions from the Lord. And I want to say praise God for that. Some of you feel like God will like speak words to you and, and that's good. Praise God for that. We, I actually think we could use some more of that in our church community of, of leaning into the fact that our world is not just purely naturalistic. How many of you know it's really easy to be an accidental naturalist in our world? We need to remember that there's a spiritual war raging around us all the time. But I do want to offer one word of caution for those of you who are oriented that way. You need to make sure that you're grounded in the word of God and in the people of God. And you need to watch out for pride. I have known people, I'll just say this. When I was, when I was growing up, I was raised in a more charismatic church tradition where, where visions and dreams and things like that were celebrated, speaking in tongues, uh, the more overtly supernatural looking things. And, and I'm, I'm grateful for many elements of that. But I did experience at times, I think unintentionally, some who would look down on others if they didn't practice those things. And maybe some of you are the kind of person, like, I have tried to be more mystical. I've tried to, you know, I put on my best Obi-Wan Kenobi robe, and I, you know, sat and I prayed. I just, I don't get those visions. I don't get those dreams. I'm more of like a truth of the word person. Praise God for you in that, okay? Again, this whole passage, don't look down on each other. Don't judge because you're this way or you're that way or you're one way or you're the other way. 
And then lastly, maybe some of you are just, I'm using the word disciplined. I don't want to use the word legalistic. Some of you are legalistic. You're like, me? Like, no. But some of you are just naturally self-disciplined. You find it easier to build a system and to build a structure and to, you know, put practices in place and to put rules in place and praise God for you. We need people who are disciplined. But please don't forget to pursue the heart. That lie is always waiting for you that your being disciplined is what makes you acceptable before God. It's not. Christ's sacrifice on your behalf, your union with him, is what makes you acceptable before God. The disciplines, if they serve to bring you closer to Jesus, praise God. If not, you need to rethink some things. All of us are prone to various distractions. But even now, as we come to sing and as we come to celebrate the Lord's table, we have yet another opportunity to be reminded of the centrality of who Christ is and what he has done for us. This week, you know, it's like, I feel like for me personally, as a a preacher, it's like I got like, 40 minutes to capture your attention because you're going to go out and there are six days, 23 hours and 20 minutes the rest of the week for you to have your attention. Hey, look at this. Think about this. Pay attention to this. And friends, I'm pleading with you, put Christ at the center. Even good things can sometimes take our eyes off of Christ. Maybe the, the, the situation is different for the Colossian church and us, but the reality is still the same. Christ is all that we truly want and what we truly need. Even when our hearts are, are, are prone to wander hearts, look for satisfaction and knowledge and understanding in other things. At the end of the day, all we have is Christ Jesus. So let's go before him now. Lord, I confess and I repent of my own heart's just tendency to turn to the left and turn to the right and look for satisfaction and look for knowledge and look for love and look for a feeling of security. God, I I just, I look in all sorts of other places and for myself and anyone else who you're bringing a spirit of conviction into our hearts right now, we confess and we repent. And Lord Jesus, even now as we prepare our hearts to eat and drink of the Lord's Supper, would you remind us once again, of how big your grace is for us. And may that capture our hearts and our attention anew. As we sing and lift our voices, may we remember that you hear us as we pray. You hear our prayers. You hear our songs. You want to commune with us. And may we do that now. May we do that now. And may it affect how we live our lives the rest of this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, I was asked why Sound City served communion every week. For myself, until about 15 years ago, the churches I attended all did communion once a month. You know, during that time, I really didn't give it a whole lot of thought. And then once I started attending a church that served communion every week, I knew that it just seemed right to me. Proclaiming Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is central to the mission of Sound City Bible Church. In communion, we remember our Savior, His sacrifice, and our hope. 
I really like the quote that Pastor Aaron shared with us today, that the Christian life is not offered merely to our acceptance. It is offered to our acquisition. It's active. It's not sedentary. This life consists in the appropriation of Christ, his person and his work. Serving communion each week reminds us of the gospel. It reminds us of the cross. And it helps us to keep that central in our lives. Our our minds are prone to wander. Mine is. Now I couldn't even imagine a worship service without communion. So the quote continues on. The Christian must live over again the experience of the Christ. He must die with him, rise with him, live with him in an endless, ever-growing life. As we go to communion, listen closely to the words Paul speaks to us in 1 Corinthians through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, it's the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you Eat this bread and drink the cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Christ is what we truly want and what we truly need So before taking the bread and juice, follow Paul's instructions to examine yourself. Come before the Father in prayer and remembrance. Confession, maybe of the times that we are distracted in thanksgiving and reflecting on his work on the cross for each one of us. Father, we come to your presence only by the blood and in the name of Jesus. Direct our thoughts and our words and prayers now for our good and your glory before we take the bread and the juice. Amen.